You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful, welcome, good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all from another edition of the Drive Time Show. It's Wednesday, 15th of November, 2023, with myself, Kayum, and joining me today is an old comrade and partner in crime, Imam Shajil, Brother Shajil, good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you, brother. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. And of course, uh, to all of our uh, listeners as well. Um, yeah, I'm doing good. Thank you so much for, for asking. And uh, what about yourself? You doing not good? Bad, not bad. Always good. Always good. You yeah. see, Always it's, good. it's one on of those things. Exactly. You see, it's one <laughs> of those things. We, we talk about the weather being so gloomy and wet and windy. And then the second we walk into... Voice of Islam, it's, you know, the sun's always shining. The in sun's always shining, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we're going to be talking about um, two two main topics as well, um, as we normally do on the Drive Time Show, uh, if you're familiar with the with the setup of the Drive Time Show. Well, firstly, we're going to be talking about dementia and um, different things in regards to dementia as well, how, you know, a lot of people, a lot of aged people go through it, they 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 have it and then how we can or how family members friends loved ones how how they can actually help those people who have dementia as well um next or towards the latter part of the show we're going to be talking about al-ghazali um and also different things in regards to him as he was you know known as one of the greatest uh, scholars in philosophy teaching different things in science um, a, a big scholar, a big scholar as well. We're going to be speaking to a few guests as well, hopefully, um, in regards to in regards to this. The number to call in, as always, is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. If you want to contribute to the show, obviously, it is an interactive show, as you as you know. And uh, Voice of Islam UK is our is our handle on uh, on X. And also, it sounds so weird. Yeah, I was about to say that, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> X. <laughs> and on, and on uh, Instagram as well. So do get in touch with us on, uh, on, on our socials also. So, so what is dementia? So, so let's look at uh, what, what is it that we're going to be focusing on and the question that, um, that we're going to be discussing and shedding mm. some light on it with some uh, discussions with some experts later on in the show is... yes. Is it a postcode lottery? Uh, postcode lottery, which, which, which we, I think we know that there is this element of your treatment will depend on where you live, not just in this aspect yeah, of yeah. healthcare, yeah, but I think everywhere, isn't it? Everywhere. I mean, that, that's how it is, isn't it? And it also depends on even in one particular city or one, one particular town. Yeah, you might have two or three uh, different hospitals, right? Yep, and. You would see the difference in the treatment uh, that the patients receive from uh, from the from the do- from the doctors, from the nurses, from the staff. How much that differs from doctor to doctor, but also from hospital to hospital as mm. well. Whether it's uh, whether it's A and E service, whether it's children's care, whether it, whether it's uh, dental care, whatever whatever it may be. You would see the difference between hospital to hospital in that same particular town or that city as well. Mm. So when we talk about this postcode postcode lottery, I mean we don't want to say it, but it kind of is. Because sadly, sadly, and I think and I agree with you. Sadly, it is the reality of it because I think finances play a lot, a big part 
in why it does it's a it's a lottery because um no matter which aspect of healthcare one looks at healthcare costs money it does absolutely does yeah i mean how many times have we sat here and spoken about the national health service and the amount of funding there is and mm. and how funding isn't going to the correct place and we've spoken to carers we've spoken to people from all aspects of health across the spectrum isn't and it and one thing they all talk about is the lack of finances um in certain areas in certain aspects of the treatment that's being done so i think you're correct brother shijil that you know whether we like it or not the reality of it yeah. is that yes it is um a postcard lottery and and i actually know a lot of people who've actually moved hmm. people who have long term illnesses right they have they have been put in a situation where they've actually calculated you know a lot of people do this with their children hmm. they move their children to areas where the best schools are mm-hmm. and i never thought of it until a friend of mine actually said to me they moved to an area where they know or the best that they were able to find out how the healthcare services were hmm. they right. actually moved to the area because right. one of their parents needed long term healthcare yeah so I mean, yeah, you know, and and that within itself is to me, it was like proof that yes, it does matter which area you live in. It does. I think I think it absolutely does as well. So I mean, a couple of decades ago, it could have been, it could have been uh, whether you live on you know north of the north of the river, south of the sure. river, east or west, and that mattered as well. But now, did, yes. now even in small small towns, yeah, uh, localities, even in di- same postcode, sometimes you will have. uh hospitals in in close proximity as well but still you would see definitely see the difference as well and it, it, quite rightly what you just said as well it's not just to do with hospitals no it's it's schools as well it's it primary is. schools secondary schools universities as well yep. but the education system is uh, it, it, it's completely the same that we talk it about is. we talk about the NHS and the national health service how much funding is needed, needed. but that need is not being met It is. Yes, and I agree. It's the I same agree. it's the same goes with, with across the public sector, isn't it? And and I think the the problem being and yeah, I mean it's ideological. What I'm about to say sounds altruistic. Mm. These things like health education and law should be outside of the realm of politics. I mean it should it shouldn't be a business, is it? But it, it is be, though, isn't it? But that's the thing, it's isn't it? That's a business. the thing. It's become a business, but that's what that's what we don't want that's what we that's the route that we don't want to take yeah. we don't want it to be a business we don't want to you know pay so much in insurances and this and that whatever or your life savings to or have your life yourself savings. cared for but Literally. you pay taxes all your life yeah you have Which is contributed well. to the system yeah. yeah and then the little bit of assets you have left at the end the government forces you to sell it to pay for your care yeah a bit bizarre i mean the number bizarre, of duplication that you do in tax payments mm. is And obviously is, is I know going off, going off in a little bit yeah. of a tangent but if you if you've got some sort of property or some money yeah. saved up from you know your father or whatever mm. if you don't have a will yes it's gone mate exactly exactly it's gone yep i mean obviously <laughs> that's a whole different topic though it's a different you know, topic a different maybe topic. we'll come back to it some other time but you're you're correct because it seems that the, the people who work hard they build assets they build an inheritance for the future of their children or exactly. to assist their children exactly It's like, well, what am I working for if it's going to be taken away from me and exactly. my children don't benefit from just it? Just because you didn't write a will. Exactly. Crazy. Now, just talking a little bit in regards to in regards to some statistics for you guys as well. The global number 
of adults living with dementia is actually projected to nearly triple, which is reaching uh, 153 million by by 2050. Now, dementia is actually uh, characterized by a decline in cognitive cognitive, uh, abilities, which actually includes thinking, uh, could be memory as well, memory loss, you know, reasonable skills as well, to the extent that it actually disrupts an individual's daily life and activities as well. Sometimes even, I mean, it's it's a number of things, isn't it? If they've got dementia, some people might have arthritis as well. They might have something else as well. Even pouring water from a, from a kettle onto, into, into a cup, that might be a difficult challenge as well for some people. So that's the extent of it. Obviously, there is mild... Um, severe and obviously there's a whole spectrum of different types of uh, different types of uh, how how strong it is and how weak it is but still dementia is dementia in some cases individuals with dementia may have trouble regulating regulating their emotions and they can be you know this can be noticeable as well with obviously different personalities and different things that they go through you know the one word that always comes intertwined with the word dementia is alzheimer's Alzheimer's, yeah. Now, a lot of people might get confused just so, just for the benefit of the listener. Dementia is a general term, as Brother Shajio just said, for a decline in mental ability severe enough to interfere with your daily life. Mm. While Alzheimer's is a very specific disease. And Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia. Mm. And, and, you know, it's... it's it, it's 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 something. It's a mistake, um, or it's a confusion that always gets caused. Uh, that people always band them together, but one is the cause of the other. Yeah. So Alzheimer's is the cause. That's uh, right. That what that is literally what causes. Yeah. I mean, if that progresses, if it's not treated, I mean, there's only so much that you can treat it as well, isn't it? That's right. Uh, if it's too late, then then it, it is quite a sad uh, sad approach as well. But that's what it is. I mean, then it leads to dementia, and obviously, there are different. Uh, severeness or you know d- the different intensities of uh, of dementia as well like you know like we just discussed um in england alone the national health service estimates that over 700,000 individuals aged 65 and older are currently living with uh, with dementia however analysis of uh, of official figures reveals that over 115,000 people with dementia remain undiagnosed um, due to different things, and that is exactly what we talk about, talked about: mm. geographical disparities. Yeah. And uh, obviously, obviously, when it comes to that, it's access to diagnosis and healthcare services, treatment. Uh, obviously, you know, availability at, at clinics, GPs. Maybe they might not even get uh, an appointment quick enough, or they might get it, or they might realize when it's too late. They might not want to get it. It might be a taboo topic in their in their family or you know whatever they're from. There are li- literally big big factors or hindrances in people's way to actually classify them or diagnose them with with dementia. So and that is a sad thing. One hundred and fifteen thousand people, right? Um, that is what the that's what that's what the NHS um, the analysis what they have uh, revealed the figures that they have actually disclosed but that puts sort of paints a picture in terms of how many people are going through this distress time now around 1400 years ago Hmm. uh, the holy quran provided detailed information about 
Alzheimer's disease. Now, if you're a listener and this this is it sounds something strange to you, then if you're a regular listener to Voice of Islam, then mm. you shouldn't be surprised because mm. the Holy Quran carries information from 1400 years ago till the end of time. Till the end of time. There are so many things in it which we, even we don't know because mm. we will because they will start to make sense a little bit later on as new yeah. discoveries new happen exactly. as new things happen and then you find out oh wow this was already mentioned this was already mentioned how did i not realize it exactly so the the, the holy quran provides detailed information addressing it not only in one verse but consistently throughout the holy quran to impart guidance to those who seek understanding hmm. and, and and you know to mention some of them uh <clears throat> Chapter 16, verse 71. And Allah creates you, then he causes you to die. And there are some among you who reach the age of senility with the result that they lose all knowledge after having gained it. Hmm. Chapter 22, verse 6. We have delivered you as a child so that afterwards you may reach your age of full maturity. And there are those among you who die. And there are, um, there are others among you who are made to recede to the age of senility, with the result that they know nothing after having had knowledge. I mean, if Very we, powerful, yeah. Powerful, yet so... Precise as well. Precise. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. what exactly. we have just said. You, you talked about how the effects of dementias are yeah. and how they affect the memory and, mm. and, and the working of the brain and how it affects your daily life. Exactly. The, 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 these verses uh, are explaining it perfectly. I mean that's what that's what that's why we are talking about this as well because obviously we have done topics like this before in the in previous shows but another reason why we are doing these shows is to remind our listeners that the Holy Quran has you know, has told us all of this fourteen hundred years ago and for some for some reason for some uh, for some people in in a particular culture right they might think it's a it's a taboo topic to talk about. They might say to their family members that, oh, you know, don't worry about this person or, they, or don't worry about him or her. They're getting old. This is what happens when you get old. Yes. I mean, to, to, to a certain degree, yes. When you do get old, you do, um, you do contract different illnesses. You do become weak. You do become frail. Obviously, you know, you do, uh, you know, you can you get dementia as well. Obviously, before that, you can get Alzheimer's disease, which all sort of leads, or that's the cause of uh, dementia as well. But the thing is, is that if the Holy Quran has mentioned all of these things 1,400 years ago, what is the reason for some of the other cultures, especially the the you know the, the subcontinent, mm. what is the reason for us to say that you know this is a this is a taboo topic if the Holy Quran has already mentioned it? Exactly, that is what I don't understand. I I so wholeheartedly agree with you that. There are so many things that we must talk about. We should. We must talk about exactly because we've already discussed how this is a condition that affects you in old age. Yeah, we all have parents who are of old age. We are going to become yeah. old. Every that's just a circle of life. Hmm. And exactly. so, based based on what we are saying, it's an interesting thing because on our Instagram story, um we are asking a question or making a, a statement as to find out how many people were aware of this statement hmm. that did you know that d dementia is the leading cause of death in the UK and at the moment 
48% are saying no they did not know mm. and 52% say they don't and this so is pretty based, even is it pretty it's even it's pretty even yeah. but the fact that 50% don't know <laughs> yeah it, and this is uh, yeah. th- these are statistics and this question is based on um research um done by the Alzheimer's Research UK um and they said that in the the leading cause of death in UK in 2022 so last year hmm. was dementia Well, and what a lot of people question the thing oh why are so many people more why is the numbers increasing we also have to f- bear in mind we are 8 billion people in the world now some decades ago yeah. we were what 3 million 4 billion yeah, 5 billion yeah. so as people have as as people have grown population has grown science has grown technology has improved medicine has improved people are living longer because people are having more healthier lifestyles mm. people retire people look after their health more people are more aware of their mental and physical health yeah, that's so true. more and more people are getting older and we know that majority of the cases with who who majority of the age range of people who get affected by dementia are people in in who i think um somewhere i was reading <clears throat> earlier today i think once you hit your mid to late mid or over 85 86 hmm. some people do get it but it is something which is deemed in people who are a lot older yeah i mean the the nhs actually uh, says as well that over 700,000 individuals aged 65 and older yeah. are currently living with dementia as well. i know i mentioned that before as well um just to remind everyone that it's it's a, it's a big number yeah. it is a big number but just like you just like you mentioned quite rightly that Yes, technology is advancing and because we have advanced so much we are able to diagnose quicker as well. Yep. Sometimes, you know, maybe a, maybe a century ago, even half a century ago, we might not you know, it might have been a taboo topic over here. I mean, let alone the subcontinent or other countries as well. But talking about um the western countries, half a century ago we didn't have the same technology as we have as we have today. Yeah. And so to diagnose something like this it was uh, you know would would have taken would have taken some time we might not even known about it properly right now this is what this is why this is why it's it's important to actually come back to these topics and talk about them uh, as well now recent uh, analysis of the nhs primary uh, uh, primary care dementia figures they indicate that significant regional disparities in diagnose in diagnosis rates as well this is exactly what we talked about uh, before in the beginning of the show with a substantial 45 percentage point difference between the highest and lowest performing areas yeah you go that's that's what it is 45 percent that's huge that's that's huge yeah. that's that's so that's that, that's alarmingly huge it is alarmingly huge um but instead of us going on about um what we think and and uh, uh, you know quoting statistics let's go and speak to speak to a professional who can um throw some insight yes um uh, throw some insight onto the, this topic let's go and talk to um Amanda Hazelgrave who is who heads uh, the biomaker factory at UK Dementia Research Institute good afternoon welcome assalamu alaikum and peace be on you Amanda thank you for taking time out and coming on to the drive time show absolutely no problem i'm really pleased to talk to you today uh pleased to have you on with us um Amanda what is the scientific basis behind um blood tests conducted for diagnosing dementia okay so for a number of years maybe 20 years or so now we've used 
we've been able to use cerebral spinal fluid, which is the fluid that you that surrounds the brain and spinal cord, and we are able to obtain with a lumbar puncture. Mm-hmm. And this fluid contains proteins that can give us information about brain health. And so that's been available for some time now. But more recently, because of like advances in the technology and our ability to measure um, these proteins with much, much more sensitive techniques, we're able to see these same proteins in blood. And this gives us now the possibility to be able to um, say things about brain health from a blood test. Um, Amanda, we were, I, I was talking earlier to, to, to my brother, Shajil, and we were talking about how Alzheimer's is the cause and dementia is something that is, is after one gets um, Alzheimer's. The test yeah. you are talking about, does that diagnose Alzheimer's or dementia? Or are they intertwined? And the reason I ask that, that in, in mm. when, when we talk about it from a layman's point of view, yeah. the word dementia and Alzheimer's always come together. Yeah. And, and people yeah. always confuse them, hence my question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dementia is an umbrella term and it actually covers lots of different diseases. Okay. It's not all Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Alzheimer's is certainly the most common and accounts for about 70% of dementia. But there are other diseases also that, you know, that covers. Wonderful. Mm. Now, you talked about um, detection and diagnosis from, from the blood tests. I just want to mm-hmm. ask you in regards to that a little bit as well. There's reference on your page to a biomarker factory for assisting in early detection and also diagnosis. For, for the benefit of our listeners, could you just elaborate a little bit about how that works and how it operates and how it sort of differs from a conventional um, blood test? Yeah, I mean, what we do in the biomarker factory is research-based. All of the uh, projects that we get involved with, all of the clinical researchers that we work with are doing studies where they take... Um, whichever fluid, blood or spinal fluid, from people who've agreed to volunteer for dementia research. Mm. And so the information that we get from these samples, from the volunteers, is very much at, uh, it's, it's at a group level. It's not individual diagnoses or anything. Mm. It, it informs how um, we will diagnose in the future. So, so when you say elaborate on how it operates and how it differs from a conventional blood test. Yeah. I mean, that kind of, that's not really what we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see what I mean? We're not, we're not a lab that gets someone's blood and then says to them, oh, you've got, you know, X, Y disease. Mm-hmm. We um, inform the science that will then lead to, to clinical um laboratories being able to diagnose a disease and I was actually we're actually at the moment working with the dementia charities on something called the blood biomarker challenge and what this is and it hasn't been I mean the funding hasn't been awarded yet or anything it's still in the decision stages but what we're trying to do is to use what we do and the technology that we have and the expertise that we have to be able to move these tests that we're able to do in our research lab 
from that into the community and into um, NHS labs. That That's the challenge that we're facing at the moment. Obviously, the, you know, the equipment that you guys have and uh, what you use as well in the labs... Mm-hmm. A couple of couple of decades ago, a couple of years ago, it wouldn't have been the same. Obviously, obviously, you know, it improves as time goes on, and we are looking to improve that also. But are there any certain challenges in in dementia diagnosis that also require some improvement to towards the accuracy of the results? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the field is moving really, really fast. There's lots of uh, medical equipment companies, you know, trying to come up with the equipment that would work in a kind of hospital setting yeah hospital lab setting but i and i think one of the challenges is the size of the challenge that we're going to face because Mm. previously if you can't diagnose a disease properly then i mean mean, what no let's start that again if there are no possible treatments for what you're trying to diagnose the Mm. impetus to do this isn't really there Mm. Where now, because we're seeing drugs that can actually change the course of the disease, it, it's a real kind of like, well, it, a real challenge. And we need to be able to educate also the people who see patients coming in, complaining of memory problems and that, yeah. to educate these people how they can use these tests, how they interpret these tests, because it is really important that the right drug goes to the right person so so you're educating the person who's made the diagnosis so the information you give them teaches them how to apply well yeah that will be the thing because we look because we with our clinical colleague look at many thousands of research samples yeah the information gained from that can then help us Mm -hmm. to give the person on the front line so to speak that kind of toolkit to be able to use the information they get from the blood test to make a diagnosis or to signpost this person on to further investigations because a lot of people i would say go to their gps or whatever with memory concerns when they're actually worried well yeah you know they haven't got dementia Mm -hmm. and it would be great for a start to be able to say to those people well we'll do this blood test and if this value is you know so low then actually we don't think you have alzheimer's disease and you know it can it can put a lot of because stress can give you memory problems so you know worrying about it doesn't really help it doesn't help it makes it worse yeah yeah exactly um so so if i'm understanding it correctly diagnosis is is key to 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 everything here absolutely yeah so in the future how significant will the role of genetics be in the diagnosis and treatment of dementia? I think that it will play a big role in diagnosis because we know now that certain changes in genetic material um, confer varying degrees of risk for somebody. And so if we can look at their DNA and see if they've got any of these particular changes there, we can make what we call a, a a polygenic risk score, basically just say risk score, and that would, along with a blood test, for example, and a clinician's expert opinion, because let's not forget, they do know what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, would you know, help us move towards a more specific, accurate diagnosis. And so, I th- yeah, I think genetics will be really, really important. And those, the 
methods that we use to look at um, genetic material have really, really moved on fast in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Finally, Amanda, we we talked about Mm -hmm. diagnosis a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. When it comes to treatment, are we looking at what is it that we're looking to treat? So diagnosis knows, we'll say, okay, Mr. X or Mrs. X has got dementia. So where treatment, we mean managing the the disease or to um, prevent the disease? I mean, the prevention is a different side of things. Okay. We can, if somebody, for example, if we use the genetics um, tests that we, you know, will be coming in, we can give someone at 40 perhaps their risk score, like okay. you do now with cardiovascular sure. disease. You That's take right. the lifestyle factors, et cetera, et cetera. And we can advise people on what, you know, how they can protect their brain health. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's a really good thing. Um, but also, with the treatments that they're not actually licensed in this country yet, and there's a lot of work going into, you know, making sure that that does... These treatments are able, at the moment, to slow the disease. And when you think about this in terms of the person, the patient actually having even if it's six months of extra time where they're able to enjoy their life their family and do the things that they normally do well that's you know that is priceless i think of course quality of life uh, i mean longevity yeah yeah. Hmm. and we're just kind of at the start now that we know that we can modify the disease there are lots more there is lots more impetus to get more drugs into trials to you know push this forward it was always thought i think that we couldn't do anything but Mm -hmm. now you know now there really is some hope that we can and how long before this becomes normal (laughs) this this is always the question (laughs) (laughs) because because you mentioned that is it's still going through the process and the straight away the thought came to mind okay we know how red tape works and yeah. you know it's so so, I mean, so what's the time frame we're looking at i would hope that in a couple of years it, wow. it will take that long to go through you know all the regulatory authorities etc and i would hope within a couple of years we will have a drug licensed in the uk god willing god willing yeah god willing amanda has a grave thank you so much uh, for taking time out and uh, and coming on to drive time show may god almighty reward your hard work in looking for mm-hmm. um, cures and treatments for uh, for such diseases. I wish you a fantastic um, evening ahead. May peace be with you. Thank you very much, and you too. Thank you. Interesting, no? Very interesting. It takes interesting. two years. I mean, and this is, I suppose this must be yeah. some, the, the frustrating part of, um, you know. It's not knowing, uh, um, isn't it? It's not knowing yeah. that you've done so much work. Like Amanda said, it sounds like Amanda's, you know, she's talking about so much research and, yeah. and hard work and and, and hours has gone into it and they're, and they're actually finding results Yet, um, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that um, there are certain things which should not have red tape. You know, it shouldn't be political. (laughs) They should be just like, okay, the population. And and it sounds altruistic, but, but, you know, it it seems like two years is a long time. To, to be able to, um, you know, to, to pass something. But yes, then also. on the flip side, I can also see that they need time to see the, the, the veracity. And obviously, then... I mean, obviously, I mean, if you go back to, if you go back to COVID days, right? Yeah. I mean, early COVID days, 
And then obviously in the beginning of COVID, we were looking to get a vaccine. Yeah. But then, but what that proves is that we yeah. can work quick. But that, that, that's the thing; we can we can get it. But then a lot of people afterwards they will say, "Oh no, they has this drawback and this symptoms and this and that." Obviously, some of them were con- uh, controversies. But that's like, but then, but you that's see, with everything, though, isn't it? But the paracetamol, you yeah. know, yeah, uh, neurofin or whatever painkillers, yeah, they all. I mean, how many times yeah, has actually? Fine. How many <laughs> times has actually someone? actually read that piece of paper that comes with the tablets yeah, yeah. and open it and looked at the side effects or this and that the other no one does it's true it's true but uh, but still i mean it, to make a proper proper drug which is of course uh, which is you're, not, I, I you're, appreciate, you're putting it on the market i, I, I do appreciate that i do appreciate that, that but, well. but again the the thought does come to mind that we said a figure of what 700,000 people yeah yeah over um, the age of imagine, 65 yeah. yeah imagine 700,000 people that could possibly find you know some kind of uh, um, a cure, or mm. or or as as Amanda said, uh, may be able to get six months extra with their loved ones. I mean, they, they uh, she did say Amanda did say that they are looking, or they do have some drugs available to actually slow the process down. Yep. But when it comes to full on, full fledged drug treatment, that is still in the you know in the works, still in the progress as well. So let's see. I mean, obviously, there are some good works that the, these guys are doing and other people are doing as well. So let's see if, uh, you know, the, the future does seem, does seem bright. Well, I mean, we, we started talking about uh, the exact thing that Amanda um, um, raised, diagnosis. Yes. And, and you were quoting some statistics about how recent analysis of uh, NHS primary care dementia figures indicated that significant regional disparities and regional rates with a substantial 45% point difference between yeah. the highest and lowest performing areas. And there are 459,000 recorded diagnoses of dementia in England. More than 255 individuals living with dementia do not have a formal diagnosis to uh, the release data. And, and that's where you know, the discussion with Amanda becomes relevant, yeah. that diagnosis is so important. It's so important as well. It's so important. And, you know, she, she, she was talking about how much uh, how much it should be readily available as well, mm. you know, doing the different drug tests and making sure that, you know, if somebody comes in, they want to, maybe they, they, you know, they say, oh, we're forgetting something or we're forgetting whatever uh, in, the, in the day-to-day routine. Maybe they should get a drug test. Maybe she, I mean, maybe she should get a blood test, yeah. and then that blood test will tell them if if it is Alzheimer's or not. Whether if, you know if they do have Alzheimer's, is that going to progress to dementia or not? So, diagnosis is key. It's very important. I'm I'm glad you said that because it takes me back to the conversation we had earlier about how within the sub uh, uh, you know subcontinental or yeah. the South Asian communities how these things are deemed as a taboo and we cannot talk about these things. Mm. So let's go and talk to an expert oh, yes. who can shed some positive light onto uh, this aspect of, of dementia. Let's go and speak to um, Naz Asghar, who is who oversees the Sahara Service for South Asian Communities Affected by Dementia. Good afternoon, welcome, assalamu and peace be on you, Naz. Uh, thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for having me at this afternoon. It's a pleasure to join you today. Pleasure to have you with us, uh, especially um, talking about this topic, which um, me and Shajil were saying is still deemed as a taboo. Is Are we correct? Yeah, very much so. I mean, because 
actually, in many Asian languages, that actually, well, we know there isn't a word for dementia because often dementia is just translated as memory loss or mental ill health. Yeah, I think and the word I think the word that uh, people say is people going mad or people are going pagal yeah. is the word. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is terrible. Yeah. Which is terrible. Yeah. Just for the listener who doesn't know what we're talking about, it, it's like uh, within the communities, people who are ill-informed. They they look upon memory loss as madness, or someone has kind of applied some kind of magic onto you, or something or the other. Of of course, which is not true. Um, but then this is why um, our guests uh, like Naz are so important, who raise awareness of these uh, of these issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the thing is that it is um, this is just an incorrect inter- interpretation because it's further stigmatizing. And yes. Um, Asian people still feel embarrassed talking about dementia because yeah. of the lack of awareness. And we need to raise more awareness, starting with our sort of community leaders. And um, and we do, we go around as a team talking to people about dementia, um, raising awareness about the symptoms so that people know that it's just, I mean, what, one thing that we have to stress is that dementia is not a natural part, a natural part of aging because people think, loss is a natural part of aging. Yes, yeah. it might be. So, for example, I go to the garage and I forget what I'm. I want. I'm gone there for that. That's something totally different. But if you're, if you're, getting something over a period of three to six months, and those things are routine for you. So, for example, you go to the kitchen and you just can't remember how to do routine things. That's not just something which is a natural part of aging. And it's essential what we do is that we reach out to the professionals and we try and get an early diagnosis because, for example, if it's Alzheimer's, there are drugs, as we know, that can delay um, the symptoms of it. And if we get on that drug early enough, it can um, dramatically improve the quality of your life. And I think this is where Asian people don't realize that we can actually do something about it. Yes. Dementia, there's no cure. Um, you know, I accept that, and we have to accept that. So, it, it, you know, it's a hard pill for people to swallow when you go in and, for example, um, say to people, there is no um, cure, but we can delay the disease and you can live well with dementia. And that, that's to get across, and that's the message I'd like to get across to, you, to your viewers as well. Naz, when you approach communities, I mean, I'm, I'm, if I was to use myself as an example, going back 10 years, I used to be an Alzheimer's volunteer. I went to Alzheimer's Society, did all the, you know, they do the training and how to be a yeah. volunteer. And, and I did all of that. And then when I went into the community, it was like, no, you're not needed. It's like, yeah. no, there is, it was like, well, you know what, there is no problem. Who yeah. told you there's a problem? So how yeah. do you deal with those challenges? I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, communication, cultural. And, and I yeah. always think as communities, because we are, as communities, they have the actual best solutions, hmm. but only if they recognize that there's a problem. How do you, yeah. how do you tackle yeah. that? Yeah, I think, um, you, well, you've hit the nail on the head. To actually address that you've got a problem, you have to, to solve a problem, you have to, uh, to accept there's a problem in the first place. Um, but what I would say is that we we are doing a great job, I think, um, the team in terms of going into the community and raising awareness because the way we do it is we use a very softly, softly, gently approach. So anytime there's a community group already set up, so for example, a ladies group that's already set up, we go and infiltrate in a very soft, 
soft manner. Just go and speak to them. We don't go and do any fancy presentations with flip charts. All we do is we go and speak to people um, in their own environment where they're comfortable and let them ask us the questions because that's all it's about. And before you know it, people start coming to you and saying, oh, well, I've got this issue or I know somebody who's got an issue. And actually, when you speak to people about dementia, everybody knows somebody who's affected by dementia and they do want to speak about it, they but do. they're a little bit frightened. And you'll know that yourself with your um, experience with working with dementia. So it's just about starting the conversation off in a way that it's, accessible to people and that's what we do we make ourselves accessible in an environment which is comfortable to them so we don't go and make it an uncomfortable subject we make it a subject which is not going to be frightening for people and that they can come to us so yes it takes a few times it's not a topic that you can go in and say right this is dementia put your hands up anybody who no you know we have to speak to people several times which is why with constant raising awareness. So our job is very different and difficult in terms of that we're constantly raising awareness. And we've addressed that with the Alzheimer's Society, that our roles are different. We um, have to constantly do that. We, we do. Now, there's one thing that, again, came to mind again while you were responding there, and it took me back to about 10 odd years ago. I always found within the community women were a lot more receptive and yeah. were a lot more willing to talk about it. But men just weren't willing to, like, yeah. it doesn't exist. Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, it is. And actually, the way that you get that get to that is through the women. So you have to be smart about it. So I remember once I went to, it was after Juma, and I gave somebody a leaflet, and the, um, uh, the uncle I gave the leaflet to said, I'm not taking this leaflet. And I said, why? And he says, because if I take it, I'm going to, I might get dementia and I don't want it. <laughs> and I said to him, well, no, no, take it because, you know, you'll need this just in case. No, no, no. He goes, I don't want it because you'll still need it. I said, no, I won't be here. So he was very reluctant to take it, almost thinking that I, so yes, there's that pride involved yeah. with men. But don't forget, behind every man there's normally a woman. <laughs> I won't respond to that. <laughs> strong, one, strong one at that. So what I would say is all of these women that you're speaking to, yeah. they're home talking to them, and they're the ones that are going to be dealing and supporting people with dementia as well. So actually... And speaking to the women is the way forward, isn't it? Is, it? it is, without a doubt, so without a I doubt. I have a solution and I have an answer to everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. we're, we're, we're running short of time, so I'm going to be very quick, but I need to I need to ask one or two questions more, which is based on, on, on the future, where, where do you think, um, where do you think this is going um, in respect of yeah. the community and how do you think... Um, dementia is going to affect the community because we earlier talked about how this is becoming another issue which is based on a postcode lottery yeah um, it is yeah, yeah how does one tackle that yeah i mean so if you look at statistics 2.8 million people in greater manchester so that's the temporary of manchester and 13 percent of them are south asian so that's about 360 odd i think um thousand south asians and if the, state, the data is showing that one in three at some point in their life will have dementia. So potentially you could have 130,000 
South Asians who may develop dementia at some point in their life. And there are no real, I mean, I don't think there's a massive lack of culturally appropriate just for dementia, but for healthcare and social care, because that's my background, health and social care. So I'm very passionate about developing culturally appropriate services for the South Asian communities. And the problem is that the government are very much reliant on the communities developing their own services, which is wrong. And um, so they expect, um, they don't, and it's not just for the South Asians, it's for the, uh, you know, the, uh, the all ethnic minorities, the BAME communities, there aren't enough culturally appropriate services. So teams like ours, yeah, we do what we're doing, but we need to, there needs to be more government input into projects like this in order that we can keep on doing this work. Awareness raising is where it starts, but it has to continue. The awareness raising has to continue and keep on going because without that work, you're not going to, uh, you can't just stop the awareness raising um, with dementia, with everything, not just with dementia, with heart disease, with stroke, everything in our communities. Um, so the, where you, the answer to your question in a nutshell is the government has to be putting more but the public purse is very tight, as we know, into these other projects where um, the un- underserved communities are um, are getting dedicated teams. Hi, Nas. Have we lost you? No. Hello. No? Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. We, we we lost you there for a second. Nas, finally, um, we we were discussing the management of how to deal with uh, dementia once you've got a diagnosis, and yeah. and and we quoted some verses from the Holy Quran. From yeah. from a Muslim community point of view, which described dementia to a T. Yeah. Do is isn't faith a good vehicle to manage and deal with dementia? Is is that used? Very much so. And um, when we go out to people who are suffering with dementia. The people that use the faith are the carers. Actually, mm. the person that's got dementia. Um, actually, unfortunately, um, as you'll know, because you, you've volunteered, um, the memory goes yes. and sometimes you can't remember. But those are a habit. So, for example, if somebody's very used to doing the wudu, they're doing it constantly through the day. They may not be able to remember how to do the salah, but yeah. they can do the wudu and they're constantly doing that. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said that the pen is lifted with people with mental health and dementia is deemed as being mental health. And I believe that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that judges on these things. But what I believe and what I've seen um, from what the work that we do, that the carers of the people, the faith is the thing that gets them through. And everybody, I do a lot of case studies on the people that we support. And when I ask them what gets you through, they say the faith is what gets us through. Um, because without having that, it's very difficult when somebody, for example, doesn't recognize you yeah. or when somebody's aggressive towards you or all the other issues. I mean, I, I, I met somebody, I don't know whether you've got time, but I, I met somebody who's got literally so much on her plate at a young age that when I asked her, and she's lost so many people at a young age of 32, including her father, but she looks after her mother. And when I asked her, you know, how do you get through? And she said, I've seen so much pain in my life. And my faith is what gets me through. So, you know, this is a a massive thing, but I think we have to understand as well that she asked me, um, she was worried because her mum mum couldn't remember how to pray. And she was asking me these questions. And, you know, obviously I had to comfort her, you know, and say to her that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has lifted the pen. Um, And it's in the Quran about these things. You have to comfort these people. You can't leave them and say, 
that they're going to be judged because you can't let them feel that, that way, no, really, no, can you? Most definitely yeah. not. Most definitely yeah. not. God is merciful. God is all-knowing. God yeah. is all-seeing. We're not the judge. We're not, We're the not judgment. judgment. We're not yeah. the ones here to judge. Yeah. Now, no. uh, thank you so much for taking time out and coming on the Drive Time Show. May Allah reward the hard work you do in raising awareness oh, within the community. Oh. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. May peace be with you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We apologize for the quality of the line, but um, I, I didn't really want to disturb the, the, the rhythm. Um, um, so relevant, um, Shajil, wasn't it? That Absolutely. Naz raised such an important point that carers mm. always t- tend to <clears throat> get forgotten in this equation. And they are the ones who have to sort of deal with it firsthand, isn't it? Yes. So obviously, it, you can imagine how difficult it is for the person with dementia, right? Yep. But obviously, the person who's taking care of them hmm. most probably is going to be their their, their wife, their loved ones, their, their family members, their children. Yeah. Or as as uh, Naz was giving an example of a daughter who's looking after, yeah. you know, her mum. Yeah, literally. Yeah. So, so th- that sort of that you know, the family needs to be the main source of relief. Yeah. And to, for, for the family members to actually be close to one another, to actually go out there and helping your parents yeah. and helping, the, you know, all the people that, that, need your, that need attention, that's absolutely vital. And this is why family, family, uh, family roles are important, family matters as well. And Allah the Almighty has actually taught us a very beautiful prayer in the Holy Quran as well, that, oh, Allah the Almighty, bless and have mercy on both of my, you know, both of my parents, as they had mercy when I was young as well. You know, you, you see your mother, your father treated the way that mothers and fathers treat their children, with love and compassion and with mercy. That is how, oh God, treat them in the same manner as well. And just to finish off there, just to finish off there as well. There's a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where he mentions that paradise is under the feet of your mother. Mm. So. To take care of your mother, to 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 take care of your to take care of her needs, to listen to her, um, that's a vital part in, uh, in in Islam, and it goes hand in hand with what we're talking about as well, taking care of our of our of our elderly, and of course our parents as well. And you know, such an important point Shajil makes, and sacrifice is something that God Almighty always rewards. Always rewards. Always. And 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 sacrifice is something that will need to be made. Hmm. Um, that is something that is uh, that's a given. That's a given. Uh, that, that's yeah. a given, you know. And, and remember that uh, uh, parents made sacrifices for us when we were kids. Yeah. Um, you know, and we will never be able to pay them back just for the fact that they brought us into this world. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, maybe that's literally. a thought that uh, we should uh, finish with. Um, we're going to take a quick break, um, go through the news, and when we come back, we're going to go on to our next topic of the afternoon, which is Al-Ghazali. So do stay tuned. We'll be right back after some messages. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Welcome back to Wednesday afternoon Drive Time Show with myself, Guyum, and Brother Shujil. In the first hour, we were talking about dementia. We had some fantastic guests who shed some light on the topic of how diagnosis is important and how, within the South Asian community, awareness needs to be raised um, about how um, dementia is not something um, uh, which is a taboo topic, but it is something, it is essential that uh, we discuss this in our homes, we should discuss this within our communities. It is something that as children, 
um, we talk to our parents um, about that uh, this is something that's here. It is something that um, one should be aware of. Um, but on to the second hour of uh, this afternoon, we are going to be talking about um, the Islamic Renaissance, I suppose. Um, this is uh, this would be part and parcel of that massive topic. Mm. Um, but today we're going to be focusing on Al-Ghazali. The theory of knowledge is uh, um, the main topic of the afternoon. And the reason um, we uh, are focusing on Al-Ghazali because in many of the attributes uh, and the skills and um, uh, the the number of um, the number of topics that would come within his um, academic uh, expertise would be philosophy. Mm. Yeah. Um, and tomorrow is the World Philosophy Day, um, and we have been discussing the works and achievements of various Muslim philosophers um, this week and last week. Yeah. So that's basically why you know we're going to look into into the life, just like you mentioned, uh, uh, an absolute a great Muslim scholar. Yep. Philosopher, theologian, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a very, very, very famous uh, character, uh, you know, the, a scientist as well. He, he's one of the most influ influential and prominent Muslim thinkers, jurists, um, you, know, you know, you name it. Al-Ghazali's approach of uh, resolving uh, apparent contradictions between reason and revelation was accepted by almost all later Muslim philosophers and had a significant influence on Latin medieval thinking. And he wrote on an average of different, uh, a range of different, sorry, a range of different uh, subjects to develop interest amongst uh, the, you know, the scholars of Islam. And his intellectual legacy continues to have an impact on Muslims till this day. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of, you know, like I mentioned, Latin medieval thinkers uh, you know, were actually influenced by influenced by him. Greek philosophers and uh, sort of their and also later Roman and their sort of the way the the way that they thought their thinking process, their reasoning, uh, different things which they sort of gave to the world came also. They were inspired also by by Al Ghazali. So that it's it's interesting to see that uh, Muslim scholars. It's like you mentioned, the time of the, the Islamic Renaissance. You can say, you can call it that part of that. And uh, Al-Ghazali is a prominent figure uh, which, comes to, which comes to mind when we, when we talk about this. Now, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said that the word of wisdom, and this is actually quite interesting, this, uh, this hadith is saying, that the word of wisdom, or is said in Arabic, Al-Hikmah, is the, is the lost property of a believer. So wherever he finds it, he should take it because he is most entitled to it. Now this is a very, it's a very powerful saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, because if we think about it, Islam is a religion which champions knowledge. It tells, it actually lays down uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a duty, not as a, not as a privilege, not as something that you can do and you're, you know you have a choice. Islam has said, as a duty, you know, mm. to seek knowledge from the cradle all the way up to the grave. Your whole life, you're a student. And this is, you know, the, you know, is the blessed, is, this is what, the, what Islam teaches. Islam and, teaches. And this is to yeah. Muslims, not 
to men, yeah. to Muslims. Yeah, and that includes everyone. Yeah. Men, and women, women, boys, girls, yeah. old, young, whatever you are, whatever your demographic may be, your, it, it is your duty. The only, the only reason I, I emphasize that is because, you know, when it comes to knowledge, this misconception, uh, a wrong misconception, wrong about, misconception Islam about Islam, yeah. is that only, um, you know, knowledge is only uh, something which is um, <clears throat> the responsibility or, or um, uh, is something uh, connected strictly to men. Um, nowhere um, has the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mentioned this. He specifically mm. talks about, um, he has spoken about the education being compulsory on Muslim. And everybody mm. knows that's not gender specific. It is for male and female. Yeah, And it's because of these misconceptions that within the Western world, uh, Islam is stigmatized uh, for something that people do based on cultural basis or innovations or customs which actually have no bearing mm. upon the teachings and the beautiful teachings of Islam. Yeah, which absolutely. Which was 1,400 years ago. Um, but uh, just for the benefit of the listener, um, when we talk about Al-Ghazali after the Islamic Renaissance, a lot of the names of uh, all these philosophers and um, and these scientists and um, poets and uh, masters in literature and physics, chemistry, biology, their, their names were Latinized. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you might not exactly. Yeah. So you might not know them as Al Ghazali. Hmm. Um, in in the Latin name of Al Ghazali was uh, Al Jazilus. Right. Yeah. Um, that's how he was known within the Latin word. Al Ghazilus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and you know it's important that we clarify that because a lot of people again have this misconception that Al Jazilus was. Latin, well, it was Latin, it was Greek, yeah, <laughs> and and that's where the beginning was. Well, as no, the beginning yeah. was a lot before that. Before that, that's. The, I mean, it's good that you mentioned that as well because that is something which we need to understand, and that is hap- that has happened to a lot of the scholars, a lot of the mathematicians. Well, Ibn Sina is, is your Ibn most Sina, famous yeah. one, yeah, you know, Ibn Sina, yeah, and then that got sort of Latinized into yeah. Ibn Sina. Well, look at algebra. Yeah. People say Al-Jabr or Al-Gebr. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, it's 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 completely yeah, different. Literally, literally. Gibraltar as well. I mean... I well, Gibraltar is Gibraltar. Uh, exactly. I mean... It's a yeah. place, it's a not place. a person. It's a but, place, not a person. But it's, it's, it's Gibraltar uh, from Tariq bin Zayad when he conquered yeah. it. Um, of course. Um, you know, in, uh, in, 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 the, in, those, in the earlier days. Now, it's important that we, that we actually realise that this is the case as well because... When people say that you know, oh, this is this is a Latin, this is exactly you know, a Latin a, a scholar from, you know, uh, from that background, or oh, this was a Greek scholar, or oh, mm. this was this, or this was that. Um, no, that was not the case because those people actually learn from, from the early them. Muslims. Exactly, exactly, and that is what we want to talk about. And exactly, that's 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 the focus point. That's um, the focus point. But I I also um, want to emphasize here that it is also the responsibility. Of Muslims themselves, hmm. we talked about how the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, told us to seek knowledge. Yeah, this is knowledge we must know about ourselves. Yeah, it we is should, for us should. to ensure that we know what the Islamic Renaissance is, because when people do, as you so rightly say, they mistakenly look at the name and they think, "Oh, okay, 
Latin, so it must be Greek. Yeah. It is for us to say to them, sorry, no. Sorry, no. <laughs> this is Al-Ghazali, it's yeah. Ibn Sina. Yeah. It's, it's so-and-so and yeah. so forth. You know, yeah. so, so it is important. Education is so key. But it also for us to ensure that we follow the teachings of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he says, seek knowledge, even if you have to go to China. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know what? All you need to do is look at the palm of your hand today and yeah, look up, yeah. go, go on your phone and, and type in Islamic Renaissance and you'll be surprised and you'll be amazed at the depth of knowledge that is attributed to actually Islam itself and yeah. to Muslim philosophers and scholars. And it is incumbent upon us to ensure that we know and we make sure our children know that this is the contribution to to the computer you are using, to um, you know science, to the glasses that you're wearing, to the aeroplane yeah, that yeah, you're yeah. sitting in, to the camera on your to phone. the camera on your phone. Yeah, and, and the reason why a lot of people in the West are not willing to believe this is because of a lot of the practices in certain countries and certain so-called Muslim countries mm. where they don't promote education. Mm. You know what's uh, what's funny as well. <clears throat> it's is that. The 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 irony of it is that some nations, some you know, some so-called Muslim nations as well, they have actually they're very quick to put edicts, yes, uh, uh, on <clears throat> or edict, you know, being a fatwa, yeah, in Arabic, on certain people that oh, you know, you're not allowed to use modern technology, Which you're not allowed crazy. to take a picture, you're not allowed to do this, you're not. The thing is, mate, who are the people who made these things? Who came up with these things? Who came up with a with a map, or or actually was able to actually identify how big the Earth actually is? But you know what? Just, just from a knowledge point of view, an education point yeah. of view, how can you put a, an edict on on knowledge, on seeking of knowledge, yeah. and yeah. adapting knowledge? Where Islam yeah, has really. always been an acceptor and as encourages us to to accept technology hmm. and move forward. In the propagation of Islam within the propagation of Islam. Let's go and talk to our first guest of the afternoon. We've got with us Tamara Albertini, who is chair and professor of philosophy at the University of Hawaii at uh, Manoa. She is a she is Swiss um, and who grew up in Tunisia. Good afternoon, welcome, Assalamualaikum, and peace be on you, Tamara. Yes, good afternoon. It's actually morning time here, but it's uh, it's evening time for you. I good morning, <laughs> good morning to you in Tunisia. Is it in Tunisia or are you in? Uh, no, I'm in Hawaii. You're in Hawaii. I, I, I am jealous. Tunisia, I am jealous. <laughs> Hawaii. Let's yes, let's let's yes. let's not go there mentally. Hawaii. Um, Tamara, which specific <laughs> works of Al Ghazali do you find particularly intriguing or challenging, and why is it that you find them um, so? Right. It all depends on what you look at. See, Al Ghazali's strength was that he was able to write for different audiences. So he would write the very complex, very intellectual pieces for his, uh, you know, fellow theologians, fellow uh, philosophers. But he also knew how to write for people who had less education, you know, were literate but had less education. So, and he's he's extremely fascinating, uh, whatever audience he was writing for. Now, challenging, you know, you mean something kind of like harder to understand, harder to follow. I would say the the the, the hardest text is in in that respect is his incoherence of the philosophers, which has often been misunderstood. Um, it seemed to be a book that goes against philosophy, that uh, 
according to some scholars, has destroyed philosophy in the Islamic world. It wasn't about destroying. Al-Ghazali is never about destroying. Al-Ghazali is the kind of philosopher, yes, philosopher, not just theologian, who would always revisit, do his inquiry, revisit, review, check again. And so, you know, if he didn't agree with something that he found in a predecessor like um, um, uh, Al-Farabi or Ibn Sina, right, he would make his case. But he was never about destroying philosophy. Um, A a piece that I love um, is, for instance, The Alchemy of Happiness. It's, it's, it's read uh, throughout the, the Islamic world. You know, there's not much philosophers who are um, still in the, you know, in the collective consciousness of the Islamic community today. Uh, typically, if they read anyone from the classical period, it's al-Ghazali. And for good reasons, because he, he knows how to be accessible for different audiences. Um, tomorrow, in what ways do you see al-Ghazali's philosophy as relevant to contemporary discussions? You, uh, you said earlier that... <clears throat> Ghazali was a type of philosopher who, you know, he continually researched and questions and researched. So it seems to me that he he was a lot. It sounds like he was a forward thinker. So how yeah, how is that relevant uh, in contemporary discussions in philosophy, theology, or, or broader intellectual debate? Oh, absolutely relevant. Because see, what Al Ghazali embodied is that you may never be dogmatic. Nothing is ever final. You know, it's, it's very clear. When you read Al-Ghazali, God has the last word. Human beings do not. So you always keep revisiting. And when you have an opponent, you need to find out what in what he says. I mean, he, you know, in those days, he felt that the opponent would be a male, right? Nowadays, yeah, the situation has changed. So, but I'll speak, you know, uh, according to the context in which he, um, he lived and wrote. You always have to find if there is anything that is actually good and that you can integrate in your own thoughts. So you may never reject something just because it comes from someone who belongs to a different religious community, who is uh, a Shia while you are um, a Sunni, um, who um, uh, may even be a heretic, but he would always just examine first. And, and um, you know, he has an, ex- an incredible hermeneutics, so a, a methodology of interpretation. Um, the, the, um, the classical um, term in Isla- Islamic theology is tetwil. He was very open towards tetwil. And, and um, the, main, the main thing to keep in mind for Ghazali is not to hang on to a word, a lasta, right? He says, always look for the meaning, the mana. The mana is really the key to, to understanding whatever your opponent is saying or whatever obscure passage you may be encountering in a text, um, you know, scriptural or otherwise. Look for the meaning and be charitable, right? And that quality, I think, is definitely uh, still needed today and maybe more needed today than, than before. Tomorrow you've studies uh, you've studied Al Ghazali to quite quite a bit as well in his uh, you know in his famous famous writings and books uh, as well the one you know what 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 he has actually given to the world we see that uh, he's famous for uh, you know his, his critique of certain philosophical ideas can you just elaborate a little bit on on some of his criticism and and how they've sort of been received in the philosophical community. And if I, if I may uh, add on to that question from Shajil, you uh, earlier mentioned that 
um, his diagnoses, I suppose, from an academic point of view, was that the final say was God's, not man's. How much was his critique? How much was his critique based on that narrative? Right. I mean, I think you're asking whether whether it com- it all comes down to religion and piety and faith. And you know, truly, he was he was as pious as can be. He was also a Sufi. He was a mystic. Uh, just to clarify that to yes. your to your audience. But no matter what school of thought he examined, embraced, um, whether it was philosophy, theology, or or um, or Sufism, it was always about finding certainty. So, for instance, um, you know, he realized at some point at the peak of his career when he, when he was the head of the Nidamiya Academy in Baghdad, I mean, that's, that's the Princeton of the day, right? Mm. Um, that he, he, was, he was universally acclaimed, applauded. I mean, um, colleagues would approach him, princes would seek his advice. And yet one day, he, he understood that, although everybody treated him as a universal genius, somebody who just knew everything, he found out that he actually didn't know much. And so what he, he was able to make the difference between what we call today in, um, in, in uh, contemporary philosophy, uh, objective and subjective certainty. Mm-hmm. You know, objectively, for instance, he, he could say the Quran is filled with knowledge, but just reciting it doesn't make you knowledgeable. Yes. So in order for that to become knowledge for you, it has to become subjective knowledge, and it has to be uh, based on certainty. And certainty is something that only you can reach. You, you cannot delegate certainty. You cannot but, say, well, I know someone who is certain, and I trust that person fully. So if that person says, you know, A and B, well, then that's exactly what I am going to say as well. So there is, there, you always have to be um, responsible for your knowledge. You have to be, what we say, epistemically responsible. And then he guides you through various ways. You know, like he would say, well, there is something like conventional truth. You know, you don't have to doubt whether the city of Mecca exists. I mean, obviously, people go and come back, and it's acknowledged that, that you don't have to, to, um, you know, to question that. Um, there is the use of rationality. I mean, um, you know, bodies bodies are heavy, right? I mean, you don't have to question that. That's part of what a body is, that it has weight, right? Um, but then there are things that are uh, much more challenging for you, and that's where you need to gain subjective certainty on your own. And he finds out, um, and he tells us about that in his famous autobiography, The Monk of Neldelel, it is ultimately... Uh, going through a mystical experience where you'll have, uh, well, you know what certainty is and remembering it and make that the touchstone of anything else uh, uh, that you try to understand. And if you reach that same certainty, well, then you may trust it. You um, see, that is really uh, the incredible strength of Al-Ghazali. You are always responsible for your knowledge, and only you are responsible for that, right? Not even scripture is something that you can, where you, that you can just invoke and say, well, it's written in the Quran. Yes, it's written in the Quran. The Quran is filled with knowledge, but you have to become knowledgeable, yeah? Tamara, I, I so wholeheartedly agree with you, and, and it, it kind of takes me to the next question that automatically comes to mind when you describe the work of Ghazali and and when he talks about how he knows nothing because yes you're correct that knowledge within itself is just when you read it means nothing 
until you put it into action you have to live it for it to be certain no right absolutely yes you're right uh, it doesn't stop with you um going through the 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 process right of um understanding something becoming certain of it um al ghazali is quite clear it needs to be followed by actions exactly so um, exactly yes. exactly which which you know takes me back to um you know e- even from the days of the uh, islamic renaissance where a lot of the philosophers and teachers spoke of um, um you know the the latter day messiah who will come and he will do exactly what al ghazali was talking about because the 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 world had got to a stage where everybody was everybody was giving lip service nobody was actually living nobody was actually living the 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 facts that they were they were reading and it seems to me ghazali is is 100% correct that in order for you to truly know the meaning of life irrespective of which which uh, um uh, which aspect you look at you can only um prove what you read if you take action on it is 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 um, my interpretation of what you said correct? I I agree. You know, you see, I have to be like Al Ghazali. We have to be like Al Ghazali <laughs> because we 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 do have to remain open, right? So right now, I right now I agree with you, <laughs> 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 and I expect I'll still agree with you tomorrow. No, no, I, I'll be honest. I mean, I was I was looking to making sure that I know I have understood what you're saying because the yes. the, the reason I I wanted to get a confirmation of my understanding being correct because that's the teaching we get from our caliph from the head of our community who is mm-hmm. always telling us that look it's not about reading just the reading of the holy quran you have to live it in order for you Absolutely. to 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 Absolutely. truly get in touch with god almighty hence why it's it's so important to us from from a, from the community perspective that that it makes sense what al ghazali was talking about in 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 you know right. nearly nearly what a thousand years ago absolutely and yeah. it's incredible that he's that he's still able to reach us i mean he really speaks to us uh in 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 a, in a language that you know should be actually antiquated but it, except that when you read him it's not his arabic is 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 still alive and and vibrating to this day um i don't know whether you know i can just add another another oh, go for um, it go for text it of, of that, course I, you that can. i love in in all its simplicity, this is not one that he wrote for, um, you know, for the high talk, right? Um, it's called the precious pearl. It's about eschatology. So what what will happen at the end of days? And uh, so he, uh, you know, it's it's all about um, people waiting and thousands of years go by, and then you know one veil uh, before the throne of God gets lifted, and then another thousand years until the next one gets lifted, and so forth. So so people are, you know, are very anxious. You know, everybody hopes they'll they'll make it, right? Uh, they'll 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 um, they'll go to paradise, and then finally the whole process starts. And there is one person whose whose actions, right, uh, whose deeds are being weighed, right, on the scale. And the angel in charge says, "Well, I'm very sorry, but it's a perfect balance, so we don't know where to put you, right? Uh, hell or paradise?" <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, "Listen, you see those." thousands of thousands of people, you know, line, who have lined up, if one of them donates you one of their good deeds, you'll be saved, right? So the poor man goes and asks, please, you know, can you, can you donate me a good deed? And everybody says, brother, you know, that might be the one that will save me, right? Finally, he finds someone, I mean, a really, um, you know, wretched guy, obviously, who says to him, listen, 
I have only one good deed. Uh. There's only one good thing that I've ever done in my life. Take it. It's not going to save me, but it will save you. And then the text says, and God smiled. Yes. And both of them were saved. Yeah. Right? That's the spirit of Al-Ghazali, right? It is, without a doubt, because because that one who had one, it was his sacrifice and it was his reward for giving up the one thing that he did have for the for the for the yes, good of yes. the other. Uh, yes. Fantastic, right? fantastic, Beautiful. without a doubt. Um, tomorrow, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, we can talk here for, an, for 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 forever on this topic, um, it but uh, like it. Yes. Um, but, but due to the shortage of time. Um, I just want to thank you for taking time out for us on the, and coming on to the Drive Time Show. I wish you a fantastic evening or for you a day ahead. And may peace be with you. <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, that was uh, Tamara Albertini, who is Chair and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She is, a, she is Swiss who grew up in Tunisia, you know, it's interesting what she said. It is. is, Because isn't that what the the promised Messiah on whom we peace, the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community, um, the reformer of the age that that everyone's waiting for. for, He's supposed to come when when the world and and the talking of God will be just lip service and nobody will actually be living the word of God. It's, it is, and it was quite quite, quite good what you asked uh, um, Tamari there as well because the the reason why people act upon different things is that because they believe in those things That's they have it. that belief yeah. but when you're doing the opposite when you're just reading and yeah. you're reading 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 and you say oh this is said and this is a this is a prophecy this is a sign this yeah. and that but then you say oh you know this is going to be oh the the sun and the moon is going to get eclipsed in 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 in, in the month of ramadan yeah. for example and yeah. that's going to be one of the signs for the messiah for the mahdi sorry now if that happens and people don't believe people will say oh no this, oh, no, no, it's not a sign. Throw it, throw it away. Exactly. And the people, you know, what was the point of you reading it? Reading, And that exactly. is exactly what happened as well. Yes. And this is why it's very good that you mentioned that it's not, and because Ali mentioned this as well, it's not just about reading. No. It's not just about gaining that knowledge. It's about applying that knowledge. Yes, action. Actually benefiting from that knowledge. And then, you know, telling other people, but also when something happens, say when a sign happens, you believe in it because it's happened. Which is what Ghazali did because he was forever exactly. researching, looking for, and as, as you so rightly yeah. said, he was a critique, but then he went to look for answers as well. Yeah. yeah. Let's and, go, yeah. hold that thought. Yeah. Let's go and talk to <laughs> our next guest uh, of the afternoon. We've got with us Kenneth Garden, um, he, who is an associate professor in the Department of Religion at Tufts University outside of Boston. He's the author of the first Islamic uh, reviver, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali and his revival of the religious sciences. Good afternoon, welcome, assalamualaikum, and peace be on you, Professor. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, uh, Professor. Um, uh, professor Garden, what was Ghazali's critique of philosophy? I mean, we were just talking about how, mm-hmm. you know, he he was the best critique of himself, and then he went and looked for more ideas. So, what ideas, philosophical ideas, did he approve of? Right, yeah. Well, famously, you know, Ghazali wrote a book called the, uh, it's usually translated into English as The Incoherence of the Philosophers, or Tahafut al-Falasifa, though other translations have also been suggested. Um, And since the 19th century, there have been both European and Arab scholars who've accused Ghazali of destroying uh, the Muslim tradition of philosophy and also natural sciences. Um, And some have gone so far as to say that it was because of Ghazali that modern science history arose in Europe and not in the Middle East or South Asia. 
Um, and so, um, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's nice to set the record straight here. Um, this is not true. Um, you know, Ross Alley's critique of philosophy didn't aim to destroy philosophy. I mean, it didn't have the effect of destroying a philosophy either. So I think it's pretty clear today that the, you know, the Islamic philosophical tradition um, continued right up until, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the eve of, of modernity and the encounter with the, with the you know, uh, European philosophical tradition. Um, so if, if destroying philosophy wasn't what Ghazali did, um, I think it's important to, to, to think about what, what he did try to do. And what he was trying to do in this, you know, the, the incoherence of the philosophers um, is to argue that the philosophers can't prove their philosophical positions, at least the, the ones in metaphysics, can't prove them with logic alone. Um, so in the book, he examines 20 positions that the philosophers took um, and shows that logic alone isn't sufficient to prove them, that logic could lead to other conclusions and the ones that the philosophers came to. Um, and his point is not to show that these philosophical positions are necessarily wrong. There are, there are some of them he thinks are wrong. But the fifth position he critiqued, for instance, was the philosopher's claim that God is one. Um, and obviously, Ghazali himself believes that God is one. Um, so his point is not that this is a wrong conclusion, but rather that the only way that the, uh, the philosophers could have known it was through revelation. You know, so he argues that revelation is necessary, you know, that, that for humans to have knowledge of, of God, um, we require God's prophets and scriptures. Um, now, there were other philosophical disciplines that Ghazali does accept. Um, you know, he accepts mathematics, um, he accepts logic, and wrote several books on this. And also, if you look at his late work on, on law, he also argues that a jurist should understand logic. Um, but I also have, have argued that another philosophical doctrine he accepts is one called the return, or al-ma'ad in Arabic, um, which is the doctrine that if you can come to know God in this life, um, that a person can spend the afterlife experiencing not the pleasures of paradise that are described in the Quran, but rather spend all of eternity contemplating God, uh, which is the highest possible pleasure. You've mentioned and uh, you've you've looked at Ghazali's different works and his his masterpiece as well. Probably the most uh, important work of his, which you know, the revival of the religious sciences. Can you just tell us, and uh, of course our listeners as well, what this book is actually about and how does it sort of relate yeah. to Ghazali's ideas about? philosophy, Sufism, you know, being mysticism, mm -hmm. different things. In yeah, to that. right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it is his most important work. You know, he wrote that in Arabic. Um, he wrote um, several other versions of it in, in Persian. He wrote his Kimiya Saladat, the alchemy of, of felicity. Um, you know, he wrote Lubab al the kernels of the Ahiyya. So it, it's, it's um, that work and its agenda was one that was kind of central to his, his thinking and his, his project um, after his departure from Baghdad. Um, and in it, um, you know, Ghazali spells out a comprehensive vision of a religious life. So he divides the revival into four quarters. Um, and one um, that, you know, so the, the first of them then focuses on the correct, you know, method and spirit to perform Muslim rituals. You know, so there's a book on, you know, uh, you know Tahara, so, you know, so, um, you know, ritual purity, Salat, um, Saum, you know, so, so prayer, fasting, yeah. and, and so on. The second one is on how we should live our daily lives in the right spirit, whether that's traveling or earning a living or in our marriages and family life. Um, the third quarter is on vices, so gluttony, greed, jealousy, things that, you know, so, so character flaws that we have and how to overcome them so we can come to know God. Um, and then the fourth quarter is on virtues that we should cultivate, again, you know, uh, in order to come to know God. Uh, patience, gratitude, hope, poverty, love of God, and so on. Um, now, many people have argued that the revival is a work of Sufism, um, and that's largely because of the deliverance from error. You know, Ghazali says he became a Sufi after he left Baghdad, so a lot of people say that, you know, kind of infer that this must be a work of Sufism. 
Um, but if you look at the book, that's not what, actually what Ghazali says. Um, he says that the book is devoted to what he calls Ilm al-Akhirah, or the science of the afterlife, the science mm-hmm. of the hereafter. Um, and in it, he also criticizes, he says that, that this science of the hereafter, this was the original focus of, of the first Muslims, of the companions of the Prophet, of the, uh, the rightly guided caliphs. And he, unfortunately, it's become eclipsed in the modern world um, and uh, by what he calls the ulum dunya the, the sciences of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and by this, he means mainly fiqh and kalam. Now, he thinks that these are necessary, but, but secondary, and that really um, it should be about attaining you know, the, um, salvation and this vision of God that, that we should be focusing um, on. Professor Garden, just listening yeah. to you, it, the, the thought that comes to mind that in today's world that we live in, science and uh, and religion are miles apart. Um, one mm-hmm. con- Supposedly one is contradicting each other. And, I mean, they both contradict mm-hmm. each other um, if one was to believe the experts who are in these fields, whereas mm-hmm. Ghazali has, is known for science as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And yet he chose to... Um, go down the, the you know the the route of of religion mm-hmm. would i be right in saying that ghazali believed that science and religion was intertwined and they were not separate from each other you know i think so you know, certainly for instance of math he says that anyone who understands it you know has to recognize it's true um and you know i, I he also talks about you know astronomical events and how they can be predicted yeah um you know if you understand the universe to be god's creation you know then it's a second you know a book you know to to read you know just as scripture is mm-hmm. um i don't think that that Razali had any sense that you know under kind of trying to understand the world scientifically was at all opposed you know to understanding um revelation or or god's you know will for human beings yeah and the reason i ask the question is within the amdi muslim mm-hmm. community we have a firm belief that science and religion go hand in hand and there's a lot of mm-hmm. um in, a lot of text within the holy quran which proves um, that science is here for development, and, and Islam is a religion which is um, which is there to to accept all the um, the developments and uh, uh, the progress that mankind has made. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, yeah. whereas in if one was to look at it outside, uh, you know, mainstream world, uh, scientists uh, don't believe in God, and 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 people who talk about God, they don't believe in Adam to be. Uh, they believe in Adam to be the first man, which kind of mm-hmm. contradicts, uh, you know, science uh, in in a massive mm-hmm. way. And it seems to me that Ghazali um, uh, was a lot um, um, was a forward thinker, um, and and mm-hmm. he he gave a a lot more deeper meaning to his uh, religious teaching from from a worldly point of view. And he looked at religion as a way of living, not just a, a mm-hmm. small aspect of his life. Yeah. Yes, I, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, you can also see that when he talks about, um, you know, he says that, that, that you can come to know the world through science, but there are some things, you know, for instance, if you want to know God, that science can't give you that knowledge. You know, so I think he sees them as two disciplines, you know, that are, are both true, uh, both important, but each of them has their own territory, we could say. You know, I, I think in the Tahafut, you know, he, what he's trying to argue is that you can't use philosophy to come to know about metaphysics you know for that you need you know uh, divine guidance divine guidance um yeah yeah but when it comes to the the natural world you know that the human reason can achieve that yeah now what do we what do we know about Ghazali's life and about you know his or the sort of the reason why he abandoned teaching and Mm -hmm. he left Baghdad yeah, because because yeah. the crisis, the crisis the, his crisis yeah. is very significant in in, in everything that uh, everyone who to, who writes about Ghazali. Right. Yes. Um, it, so there are there are 
two schools of thought, you know, about the crisis in terms of his thinking anyway. You know, so some see it as a watershed and that there was his pre-crisis thought and his post-crisis thought, and the two are radically different. Um, I tend to belong to the second school and think that there was more of a continuity in his thinking. Um, the, the crisis, I mean, somebody maybe has already talked about it on the show, and there's no need for me to, to repeat it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, but, you know, we know that um, he describes in, in, the revi- uh, in the Deliverer from Error that, you know, he was examining four different schools of thought. Um, and these were, uh, you know, theology, Ismaili Shiism, and it's an infallible imam, um, philosophy and Sufism. Each of them, you know, promised certain knowledge. And he concluded in the end that only Sufism could do this, um, but couldn't bring himself to put theory into practice until God sort of sealed the matter for him by robbing him first of his ability to speak and therefore to teach, and then also to to um, digest food. And so from there, he says, you know, he left Baghdad, you know, he claimed to be going on Hajj, but went instead to Damascus um, and began his Sufi practices in the minaret of the Umayyad mosque there. Um, so I'm a little bit skeptical of some elements of the story for reasons um, that I really have time, I think, to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can see that we do have information from other sources about his life, um, including his letters in Persian. Um, and these are very interesting. Um, there's an event there also um, related to his departure from Baghdad that he, he uh, mentions in two letters. And that is that at one point, Rakas Ali went to Hebron and took a series of vows at the tomb of Abraham. And he said that he would never again appear before a ruler, a sultan. He would never again take money from a ruler. And he would never again a, a participate in public theological debate or monavara. Um, and this suggests a different set of concerns um, that, that maybe part of what motivated him to leave Baghdad was also a concern about, you know, that his, his religious life was being compromised by his, you know, nearness to the political rulers at the time. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Seljuk Empire, you know, had fallen into a, uh, you know, a civil war in this period of, of his life, and that might also have played a role. Um, but the other thing I would point to, I guess, if you want to know um, what Ra's Ali did come to as a result of his crisis, I think, you know, again, it's important to look at the masterpiece that came out of that, and that, again, is his revival of the religious sciences. And that's a book in which Suf- Sufism has a role to play, um, but not a definitive role, you know, and, and philosophy, I think, also plays a role there. Uh, Professor, finally, you, uh, you, you are uh, someone who has read um, very deeply into into the philosophy um, and and into Ghazali and is is it just Ghazali or was it the various philosophers um, within the Islamic Renaissance that came at that time? Hmm. Well, I can say that the philosopher that Ghazali was most fascinated with was Ibn Sina, mm-hmm. um, and and so and and I think it's from Ibn Sina then that he gets some of his ideas, um, including I think most importantly um, Ibn, the way that Ibn Sina understood what he calls out, you know, al ma'ad or, or the return to God. And I mentioned this before, this idea of coming to know God in this world, such that in the afterlife, you know, you spend all of eternity contemplating God, and that the pleasure of the afterlife then is the love of God. You know, to know God is to love God, whereas our earthly loves kind of grow stale after a time, um, because God is an infinite, you know, entity. Um, we're constantly learning more about God, um, and as our knowledge of, of God grows, so does our love of God. And this then is, is the, the pleasure of, of the afterlife, you know, for, for all of eternity. Um, and that's an idea that he got from from Avicenna, yeah, from Vincina. Now, it's, again, um, uh, please forgive me for going off on a tangent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's just, um, I look at all of these philosophers going back just under a thousand years ago, who mm-hmm. have uh, connected science and maths and 
and all these other um, subjects with the teachings of God Almighty. Why, mm-hmm. why is that a miss in today's day and age? I mean, if one was to look at the teachings yeah. of Al Ghazali and Ibn Sina, and and all the influences that all of these philosophers mm-hmm. and and religious experts, because religion was a driver for these people, why is that yeah. missing today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that is a very complicated question, um, and it goes into, I think, the question of secularism. Um, there are many different theories about what secularism is and where it comes from, um, but it's an idea that, um, you know, that there is a field of our life um, in which religion can have a role. That's mostly the pri- in our private lives. Uh-huh. Um, but then in public life, when we talk about public life, you know, we can talk about our shared concerns, political concerns, say, in terms of economics in terms of sociology, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, political science, political philosophy, um, and that these, uh, you know, fields really don't make reference to, you know, ultimate concerns or, or, or to God. Um, you know, interestingly, I'm, I'm not in the habit often of, of uh, you know, quoting a Said Qutz, but, you know, but I think he put this in a pretty profound way. He said he describes this, you know, th- this from his perspective was what he called a horrible schizophrenia. Um, that 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 the, in the, the human mind would be divided on the one hand between a sort of secular sphere and a religious sphere, um, mm-hmm. and and rather than seeing the religious sphere as being relevant to all of life, um, you know, obviously there are many people who feel that this 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 division isn't necessary, um, but you know, one d- difficulty, um, you know, in in integrating it again, you know, is also uh, religious uh, pluralism, you know, religious diversity. Um, you know, in my own country, in the United States, you know, if we wanted to, you know, to all of us have a shared religious reference, which one would it be? You know, would it be Protestant Christianity? You know, if so, which Protestant Christianity would it be? Um, you know, would it be Catholicism? Um, you, you know, and so this uh, um, this this is another argument. That it, people, it is, you know, it is another it make. is another yeah. argument. But mm-hmm. if 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 I was to say, well, if one was to go back to the teaching of exactly who we're talking about, Al-Ghazali, mm-hmm. that yeah. even religion needs to be rational. It needs to make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It needs to yeah. be logical. Mm-hmm. And and, and mm-hmm. that's what seems to be missing today. Um, that, yeah. you know, it, 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 that rationality um, is, is, is a miss. And whereas Al-Ghazali was very, very specific uh, when he yeah. was critiquing himself was that he was, um, you know, th- that religion and, and uh, teachings of God Almighty have to be rational um, in order for them to be put into action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. I mean, so th- that, that, you know, for Ghazali, for of course, the question of secularism didn't arise, you know, because it didn't exist. Exactly. Um, you know, it, yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was more the question of like what role you know how how do, what role can rationality play in religion? Yes. Um, and I and as I said, like you know when it comes to understanding the natural world or or doing you know Islamic law, for instance, you know there's an important role for logic there. Um, but but he did want to say I, I guess he had two things, two arguments that he made. One is that you know there are certain things about God we can only know through revelation. Um, and the other is that he critiqued people who felt that they had somehow transcended the need for ritual. Um, he referred to these as um, the Ibahiya, um or permissivists, I think is, is how it's been uh, translated. And he's talking about Sufis, some philosophers and, and others who feel that because they've achieved such a deep insight, you know, 
um, the ban on alcohol doesn't apply to them, um, that they don't have to pray, they don't, they don't have to fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's for you know, common people. And this yeah. is one of the things that he insists on, that this, this is actually necessary for everyone, that there's a divine wisdom in it that you, you, we, we will never outgrow. So. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Professor uh, Kenneth Garland, firstly, I'd like to apologize for the extra questions that I kind of <laughs> threw at you. Oh, no. But thank you so much for answering them. Um, and I okay, want to thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. Uh, I want to thank you for taking time out. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Okay. I wish you a fantastic evening ahead. May peace be with you, sir. Okay. Thank you, Kate. Goodbye. Thank you. Interesting. Very interesting. Very see, interesting. It's, it's this, this, and the reason I asked, Professor, and, and thank you to Professor Garland for answering the fact that he himself said that, you know, that the, the discussion is whether religion is encompasses everything yeah. or the world and the religious life are separate. But isn't that the teaching of the promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya yeah. Muslim community, um, you know, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, um, on whom be peace, that religion, and, and again, it's not just his teaching, he's reviving the teaching yeah. of the Holy Prophet. It's not a new teaching. He's just reviving the teaching because Absolutely. exactly what Professor Garden said, that people had separated them hmm had happened to an extent that people had given importance to world hmm. and completely ignored. And that is what the destruction of the Muslims was. That's, That's it. exactly what it was. That's and it. when that when that was there, there was so many, so many centuries of darkness. Yes. And then after that darkness there had to be some sort a of revival. A, a, a revival. There yes. had to be. And that exactly was who you just mentioned, yeah. the Imam of the Age, the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the awaited Mahdi, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Muhammad of Qadian upon whom be peace. Now just like you mentioned, very rightly, he was the one who brought Islam back. Yes. He didn't make any new Sharia, any new law, no. any new Holy Quran, any new declaration of faith or anything. No, he brought the same teachings back. And it's important and it's good that uh, Professor Garden actually mentioned as well that there are some Sufis, there are some mystics that they think that they are above the law now. They think that they yes. are above yeah. the Islamic law, which is... Absolutely not the case. I mean, if anyone, you know, if anyone was to be exempt from any of the duties, from any of the commandments, it would be none other than the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings exactly. upon him. But, you know, he was the one who prayed the longest. In fact, he prayed so long, voluntary prayers, that his, you know, his wives used to ask him that, you know, you, everything is forgiven to you, everything is forgiven. Allah the Almighty has promised paradise. He's given you the highest status in paradise. So what? Why? Why, are you why do you spend so long <laughs> crying? You're, you're 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 crying so much. Yeah. Your bed is wet. Yeah. Your feet have swollen. Yeah. Why? What's the need? And then he said the very beautiful answer that don't I want to, don't I want to be a a thankful servant of my Lord? You know, I mean, what a beautiful answer the Holy Prophet gave. How can people? How can these so-called you know Islamic scholars or Sufis or whatever, they think that they are above the law now, that yeah. they don't have to fast, that they don't have to pray, that they don't have to perform hajj or all these different things, isn't it? And this is why, this is why the revival of Islam was so much needed. Yes. To bring people back to the real teachings. But this also makes me think that hmm. at the time of Al-Ghazali, at the time of Ibn Sina, at the time of all of these philosophers and scientists, yeah. the driving force the vehicle which used to 
get them to delve into all of these topics was God Almighty. It yeah. was the teachings and and the, the teachings of the Holy Quran and the yeah. teachings of all the saints before them. Yeah, exactly. And and exactly. and the teachings of uh, the disciples and the 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 companions of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Yeah. And 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 the life of the com- of uh, uh, his Holy Prophet, uh, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. They That's were the the driving force. Yeah. Um, and then, as you so rightly said, suddenly there was this dark period where people, Material, I mean, materialism, materialism became the materialism yeah. became the, the 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 god. Yeah, the driving force. That when, which that's is, when it shifted. Which even today, yeah. um, His Holiness, uh, um, the fifth Caliph of the Promised Messiah, uh, Hazrat Mirza Masood, Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand. He was recently asked in a virtual in a virtual meeting um, uh, about how people. Um, get the number of people getting anxiety and depression hmm. is increased. Yeah. And he says, yes, it is increased because people ask now, the, the reason for depression and anxiety is more material. Yeah. It's not medical. Yeah, A yeah. medical yeah, condition yeah, yeah. is being developed because of materialism or because of they don't have this, that and the other, which is material based. It's not based on godliness. It's not mm. based on uh, moral. It's not based on ethics and values. It is based on having an having ownership this, of something. Having this, having that. I mean, there's a this. I mean, there's when this is the case, right? And this is literally the case. Yeah. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He very beautifully uh, said the solution to. He told us the solution for this. He said that when you look, at, you know, when when you look at someone in worldly sense who is lower than you, become thankful of God. Yeah. That you think that you know you you don't have you don't have a jet plane you don't have this you don't have that but look at the person who's below you yeah that person even doesn't even have a car you might you ha- might have a car that person doesn't even have a car that person might say oh no you know I don't have a car but look I can still walk this person doesn't even have legs so worldly perspective we should always look at those people who are underneath you who are be- who are beneath you so that you become thankful of God but obviously when it comes to religious aspects. Look at the person who's on top of you. You think that you have done this good deed and that good deed and this hajj and this umrah and this whatever. But look at that person who's done so much more than you. Always strive to become better. You know, we're coming up to the hour. It, yeah. it The thought comes to mind that we are talking about these these philosophers, these great people mm. of nearly a thousand years ago. And, yeah. and if one was to look at today's thinking and the thinking then, their thinking was more progressive then than it is today. Yeah. And yeah. the only person who has come in the past hundred years who has been of the like mind thinking has been the reformer of the age, who the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him himself, yeah. had had uh, had spoken about, which is what we believe as the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, that the founder of the community is the, the, the promised Messiah who everyone um, has been waiting for where religion and the belief of God is not something which is of lip service, but mm. it is a way of life. A way of life, absolutely. Um, and it's all based on justice, humanity, and the love uh, of of your neighbor and 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 love of your uh, love of your neighbor and and humanity. Humanity um, as, as, yeah. as 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 a whole. Um, absolutely. absolutely. Finally, I just want to thank uh, our producers, um, Rabba Nasir and Maria Ahmed Duba for. Uh, two fantastic topics. Um, thank you for them for preparing today's shows. Thank you to all of our guests. Yes. Um, Tamara Albertini, Kenneth Garden, Mustafa Mahmoud, 
uh, Abu Sway, who we weren't able to connect with. So apologies to him because uh, there was trouble connecting to him and it was a terrible connection. Maybe next time, uh, maybe next time we will uh, connect with him. I hope you've enjoyed today's shows. Uh, please remember us in your prayers. Please forgive any shortcomings. Until next time, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.